Welcome to Parker's Podcast. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word by Dr. Mac Amos. This week's guest speaker is Dr. Daryl Paul. I'm grateful for the privilege to look at the Word with you this morning, to study the Word with you this morning. Um, It is my great privilege to serve you as your pastor of Discipleship and Missions. And uh, periodically I have an opportunity to preach either on Wednesday nights or here in the Sunday morning service. And uh, when I have had those opportunities, I've tended to preach on missions. And it's just worked out that way. But I have a heart for discipleship. And this morning I want us to focus on discipleship, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to look at in John chapter 9 has to do with discipleship. Now I want us to focus on discipleship this morning because Dr. Mack has declared that for our church this is the year of revival. And if we're going to think about revival, we're going to think about, we're going to end up inevitably thinking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, John chapter 9 is, I believe, one of the most powerful chapters in the Gospels when it comes to disciple making. Jesus does some instructing toward his disciples so they understand better the nature of what it means to be a disciple of his. But then he provides as well a living example. Again, Jesus wants you and I to understand the nature of true discipleship. So I want to ask this question. I want to get you thinking this morning about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me ask these questions of you. Now think this. Think about this. Think about who you are as a disciple and answer these questions. What does Jesus want for and from me as his follower? And if I were to live my life that way, what would it look like? What would it look like to be the follower of Jesus that he wants me to be? Well, let's think about revival for a second because I think it will help us. Um, I've written down a, a definition of revival. And if you go and look it up in a dictionary, you might find something a little different. But this is the definition I have for us to think about. And that's this. It's a renewal of life or vitality. A renewal of of life or vitality. Now, most of the time, if you go up to the average Southern Baptist at least, and you use the word revival, they're going to think of an event. Because that's how we've treated revival in the past. We decide we want to have a revival. What time of the year we want to have a revival. We calendar a revival. We hire a revival preacher, evangelist to come and, and preach a revival, series of revival services. And God often moves, he honors our attempts to hear from him in that way. But truthfully, by its very definition, revival is not an event. It's not. Revival is a supernatural work of God within the hearts of his people where he realigns our hearts and our lives with his. That's what revival really is. It's, it, revival, you can say it this way, if you were to say it even simpler. Revival is when we return to a right relationship with Jesus Christ, where we remember once again that Jesus is master and we are called to serve him. That's revival at its essence. Now, we already know 
that we're called to live a life as Jesus' disciple, as his follower, daily. You know, Luke 9, 23, where Jesus says, If any man would come after me, he must do what? He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Notice, follow me. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to a life of discipleship. We are called a life of learning, so we become like him in heart and in action. You and I are each called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ for a purpose, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But in order for us to do that, we first have to deny ourselves and die to ourselves. How daily? You know what that tells us? That tells us, it reminds us, it's important. It's really not about us. It's about Him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Where you live your life toward Jesus, for Jesus, in alignment with His priorities and his values so that you obediently perform his will for your life and in doing so you become more and more like Jesus. Now that's God's will for your life. You don't even have to ask about it. It's it's apparent as scripture that God intends for you and I to become more like Jesus and the way we're to do that is to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But the truth is we often fail to live up to the life of purpose for which Christ saved us. It's just the truth. Well, in John chapter 9, we see a, an encounter here that reminds us that Jesus wants his followers to return to a life of true discipleship. That, that, that's what I want to remind us of this morning. Jesus is calling you and me to return to a life of true discipleship. And we see an example of that from John chapter 9. Now, let me just say this before I read. Verses 1 through 12, that's where we're going to camp out. John chapter 9 is a full story. From from 1 to verse 41. It is one story, but we're we're not going to read the entire chapter this morning. You're probably, okay, good. (laughs) But we're going to camp out on verse 12 and we're going to... Reference some things in the following verses. Let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he, that's Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened... So that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is a day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How, were, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went 
and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. This passage, in fact the entire chapter, is an account in the day of the life of a disciple of Jesus. Now, this is just one example of many of the great and wondrous works of God that Jesus performed in His ministry. And you need to realize the whole way along the way that His disciples, those who had attached themselves to Jesus as their rabbi, that they followed Him daily. And they were learning from Him. And they were doing what a disciple does. A disciple is meant to follow his rabbi, to sit at the feet of his rabbi, to learn from the rabbi, and to become just like his rabbi. And that's what they were doing. And so this is just one of the events in the life of Jesus' disciple. Now I want you to realize that this story has two perspectives. Two perspectives. You have the perspective of the man who was healed. And it is totally valid for us to see through his eyes and and experience what happens from his point of view. But I want us to focus on the disciples and the lesson that Jesus is providing his disciples in this encounter. Now, now why are we going to focus on that perspective? Because John chapter 9 is really about this lesson that Jesus is giving his disciples. It is about discipleship. John 9 is about discipleship. Now, how do I know this? You might say, well, Daryl, that sounds great, but, but how do you know this to be true? Well, if you go back, if you read through the Gospel of John, you will see throughout, you can see Jesus training his disciples, always ministering to the crowds. He's ministering to the people. He's preaching and teaching. He's proclaiming the good news of the, of the arrival of the kingdom of God. He, he, he's doing all of those things, but along the way, He's constantly investing in his disciples. He's constantly training his disciples. Now, we're not going to go back to chapter 1 and trace this all the way through. But look with me for just a second at chapter 8. Look at two verses from chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see it right there. Part of Jesus' mission, a a portion of Jesus' mission, is that he would call disciples to do what? To follow him. That's that's what Jesus did. Jesus called people out to be his followers. We see that in verse 12. But look over at verse 31. So the Jews, some of the Jews, who, some from the crowd, began to believe in him. And this is what he had to say to them. Now listen. If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. In other words, he wants them to understand the nature of true discipleship. You see, there's a number of people in this world who claim to be believers in Jesus, claim to be followers of Jesus. But when you look at their life, they don't look anything like Jesus. They don't have his values, his priorities. They don't do the things that he commanded them to do. Jesus says this, when the rubber hits the road, those who truly Believe in me. Those who truly follow me, obey my commands. Do as I say. And so Jesus is training disciples all through the book of John. And these disciples, they're they're soaking up these lessons. 
Lessons as Jesus taught. Lessons as he provided an example, as he acted. And they're soaking these lessons up day by day. And in John 9's encounter, Jesus provides his disciples a living lesson. Now I want you to notice three things from the verses that we read. Okay, And the first thing is this. Jesus' disciples, in verses 1 through 3, Jesus' disciples ask the wrong question. They just miss it. They ask the wrong question. Jesus uh, encounters this man who was blind from birth. And the disciples immediately ask, they, they ask, who sinned, this man or, this, or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, they assume, it's always dangerous to assume things, they assume that the man was blind because it was some form of divine punishment. That he had received one of those good old-fashioned smitings of God, either because of something he did or his parents did. And they asked Jesus about this. And you need to remember that the Jews at that time, they believed that you could do some great, one great act for God and, and get eternal life in return. And they also believe that you could do something really, really bad and, and boy, God will, God will, you know, God's sitting in heaven with a, a, a lightning bolt in his hand. He's just waiting for you to mess up and boom, you get out of line. He's going to drop it on your head. That sort of thinking. We see that clearly here in these verses in their question. And it's the wrong question. You see, they're playing the blame game. Now, you and I do it too. We absolutely do it. When we or someone we know or meet along the way is hurting, they're in pain, they're struggling, uh, they're going through a hard time, a difficult time, we like them often in our attempts to answer the question why, which that question is bad. Why? Okay. But in our attempts to answer that, we often assume that if something bad is happening to somebody, it's because... They deserve it. They deserve it somehow. They've earned it somehow. In fact, we do it to ourselves. Something's not going good in my life. Oh, I must have done something wrong. You know how, it's amazing to me, how quickly we forget that we live in a broken world. And in this broken world, bad things happen to people regardless of innocence or guilt. We forget that. And while it's true that God does spank His children, and that sometimes He does punish us, he corrects us. He's training us. And yes, that does happen at times. Most of the time when bad things happen to you, it's not God smiting you or punishing you. It's, it's not divine uh, a judgment of any kind. But we forget that and we assume. And I want you to see how uncaring it is for us to play the blame game. Someone hurts and the first thing we do is try to figure out Who's guilty? Rather than loving them. Rather than caring. Rather than reflecting the love of our good God to them. We go, well, they must have done something to deserve it. Notice also the most insidious part of the blame game. When you play the blame game. When you and I play the blame game. We do it to make ourselves feel good about us. To vindicate ourselves. We see somebody hurt and we go, oh, they must have done something to deserve that. They must have done something to deserve that. 
Oh, and since I'm not hurting, I must be doing pretty good. Do you see how the blame game is satanic? It is inspired by the devil. It is the worst thing that you could do. This question is the wrong question for them to to ask. If so, what's the right question for us to ask? What should they have asked? Well, it's simply this. They should have asked, What is God's greater purpose for bringing this man into our path? Into my path? And what is my part to play in this, in God's greater purpose? You see, they had received a divine appointment. You know what a divine appointment is? Divine appointment is the idea that while, sure, circumstances happen in life, not everything is is, uh, 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 pre-planned. At the same time, God is in control of your every step. And He brings people into your life and into your path. For a greater purpose. For a redemptive purpose. And they miss out on that. They miss out that this man has been brought for a greater purpose into their lives. They're just not spiritually ready yet. Spiritually mature enough to recognize a divine appointment when it comes. Now we see from what Jesus says here. He confirms that this is a divine appointment. That there is a greater purpose. What does Jesus say? He says that this man, his problem, his pain, his ailment, his dilemma will be for the glory of God. And to point people to Jesus. He says it, it is so that there might be a great work of God in this man's life and through this man to others. That this has And we know that when God does a mighty work, when He does something amazing and unexplainable, it is always for the purpose of drawing men to Jesus, the Savior. And so we see this, that, 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 that this is a divine appointment, that there is a greater purpose in this man's life, even in his problem. Let me tell you something. You need to understand that this is a great encouragement. If you're hurting or someone you know or love is hurting, This is a great encouragement because if you're going through pain or problems or troubles of some kind, what do you need? You need healing, whether that's physical or or emotional or whatever it is. You need healing. You need help. You need support. But most of all, you need hope. And our hope is found solely in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And that is the great work that God is about to do in this man's life. This this man, his family has done nothing for him to deserve to be born blind. But his disciples, Jesus' disciples, are just simply not ready yet to be aware that God has a greater purpose in this encounter. So the disciples asked the wrong question in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 5, the disciples fail to recognize an opportunity. An opportunity. They may have failed to recognize a divine appointment, but Jesus doesn't fail. He totally understands what God is doing. Jesus understands that this is is a divine appointment, but in addition to that, this is a teachable moment. What do I mean? Well, you know what a teachable moment is. Uh, You're with your child or your grandchild or... Sometimes it could be a friend or acquaintance. 
something happens of significance. And you realize there's an opportunity for you to apply the truth of God's Word to the life of an individual and to invest in them. So as a, particularly as a parent or a grandparent, you make sure to take those opportunities to explain the spiritual principle, the biblical principle that's applicable to this situation. And it's a teachable moment because they're available to learn. They're willing and available to learn. And so if you're, if you're a parent or grandparent, you just love these teachable moments. Jesus sees a teachable moment. This is an opportunity for him to clarify for his disciples the nature of true discipleship. It's in these verses, verse 4 and 5, that it becomes crystal clear that chapter 9 is about discipleship and not really about this man's dilemma. Jesus reminds his disciples and us that it is the disciples' responsibility to take advantage of every opportunity to do what? To be about the works of the Father. Jesus said, I'm, I'm doing, I'm joining in on the works of the one who sent me. That's his Father in heaven. But I want you to notice how Jesus says this. If you miss one word, you're going to miss the point. Because verse 4 and 5 is the heart of the lesson. What does Jesus say? He says this, as long as it is day, we must. We, not I, not you, we must. What is he saying to his followers, to, to, to the people who are there with them, his followers then and now, us? What is he saying? Well, he's saying, first of all, that we need to be aware and watchful for these divine appointments, for, for, for these opportunities to be about the Father's work. The problem is, if you're like me sometimes, you're so busy with so many other things that you miss them. You, you, you know, God brings some... How many times have you been going throughout your day and you just had an encounter of some kind and then you get in your car to go back wherever you came and you go, hold on. I had an opportunity to have a gospel conversation and I didn't. I just wasn't on. I just wasn't aware. I just wasn't paying attention. And I missed out on that opportunity. How many times has that happened to me? We have to be aware or watchful. We can't live day to day. We got to seize the day as disciples. God intends also, he says in this, God intends us to be about his works. We have work to do. In other words, we better be concerned with eternal matters or we're going to be concerned with temporary things. Unfortunately, we can do that. But then also, he's inviting us to join in his example, to follow his example. In other words, we have a choice to follow him or to follow our own wisdom, to learn from example or not. I don't know about you, but there are days when I... I'm not following Jesus, I'm following my own advice and my own wisdom. We can't be doing that. Jesus has provided us every lesson and every example we need to live the Christ-like life every day. So what is that example that Jesus provides us? Well, he says it. 
What is he doing? What's his mission? What's he joined in on? Jesus says he has come to pierce the darkness of this world because he is the light of the world. And he has joined his father in, in his mission, in his work of redeeming the lost. And we need to do that as well. See, the, but the question is this. The question is not whether we are called to join in in God's redemptive work. The question is whether we will accept and embrace the mantle of discipleship. You remember in 1 Kings 19? Remember Elijah, he just had that great uh, victory on Mount Carmel. And uh, he, he, he was victorious over the, the prophets of Baal and the prophetesses of Asherah on the mountain. And then the queen comes along and says, I'm going to kill you. And he literally falls apart. He runs off in the desert, goes into a depression. God has to restore him. And God tells him there, he says, take heart, Elijah, because I have chosen your successor, the person who will be your understudy and who will succeed you as my primary spokesman for God's people. His name is Elisha. Go find him and call him. And so next thing you know, Elijah finds Elisha. What is he doing? He is busy at work. He's got all those oxen and he's plowing in his dad's fields. And he is busy at work. Elijah just walks up to him, takes off his cloak, his mantle. The, the, um, it was the symbol of the prophetic authority. And he simply takes it and throws it over Elisha as he works and turns and walks away. And the scripture says that Elisha stops and recognizes this great privilege and calling that he has. And it says that he runs after Elijah so that he might follow him. It says that he, in, in, his, in his great commitment, he takes his oxen, he slaughters them, he uses his plow as firewood, and he throws a party and a barbecue for the entire neighborhood to celebrate this great privilege and calling that he'd been giving. Hey, Elisha, he was all in. There was no going back. He had killed his oxen. He, he, had, he had chopped up his plow. He said, I'm all in, Lord. I'm all yours. I am totally committed. It reminds me of a song that's on the radio right now. Christian radio, a Christian music group called King and Country. They've got a song out right now called Burn the Ships. And what they're referring to is the conquistadors when they came to America. You know, they came to search for gold. And when they get to the shores of America, they would unload all their workers and all their warriors. And they get them on the shore. And one of the first things they do is turn around and burn the ship they came on. Why? So there would be no turning back. And the men would stay totally committed to the mission. King and country have lyrics. They just say this. They say, burn the ships, cut the ties, send the flare into the night, say a prayer, turn the tide. So light a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and don't look back. A picture of total commitment. A picture of the commitment you and I need to have as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. Committed to Him. Committed to being like Him. Committed to joining Him in the mission. But if we're going to do that, we've got to seize every opportunity. We can't be like disciples and fail to see the opportunity to minister to this man, to have an eternal impact. 
And let me just say this. If you, I, I, I find there's a lot of confusion about this. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are Christ's disciple. And He has called you to discipleship. And He calls you to take up the mantle of discipleship. It is not optional for you. It's simply a matter of obedience. Will you embrace this commitment and this calling that Christ has already given you? The Father has called you to extend His good news message to everyone you meet. But especially to those He brings into your sphere of influence, into your life or in your path. In other words, you and I have work to do. It's, it's God's work. It's the works of the Father. We need to join in. Jesus joined in. We need to join in. We've got work to do. Everybody loves Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Well, particularly 8 through 9. Beautiful, wonderful, assuring passage where Paul says, You have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works lest any man should boast. We're reminded that we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. But don't forget verse 10 where he says, God has appointed for us works to do. Good works to do from before the foundation of the world. In other words, back before God created anything, he wrote down on a sheet of paper your name and a to-do list. In other words, He plans for you to get to work. He has work for you to do. And the only question that remains is, will you? Will you recognize Jesus' right to call you to that work? That's the question. But you'll never do it if you don't seize the opportunity. Disciples fail to do that. They ask the wrong question. They fail to, to recognize an opportunity and to seize it. But the last thing we see in verses 6 through 12 is this. Jesus' disciple, that disciples, they must not miss this man's example. Jesus is providing a living example for them of discipleship so they can learn this lesson. What does Jesus do? I, I love this. It's, it's just so cool. Jesus spits in the ground, makes some mud. It'd be considered unsanitary today, especially with COVID-19. But he's Jesus. He gets to do what he wants, right? So he spits on the ground. He makes some mud. He puts it over this man's eyes. He says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The scripture says that the man was blind until he washed in the pool. That he came home seeing. He didn't go there seeing. He came home seeing. And what we learned there is that, hey... You want the blessings of obedience? You have to obey the Lord. Follow His instructions. Follow His example. That's, that's such a beautiful passage. And this man himself is an example. And we know that, that, that not only was he healed physically, it says in verse 35, he finally sees Jesus face to face. He never saw Him, right? But not only was he healed physically, but that he was transformed Internally, in his heart and in his life. We know that because when he was being interrogated by the religious leaders in the passage with verses we didn't read, verses 13 through 34, that he boldly identifies with Jesus to the point that he says to the ones attacking him, the ones accusing him of lying about Jesus, he asked them, So, 
Do you wish to become His disciples too? You know what He was saying? He was saying, I'm all in. I'm His disciple. If you want to be His disciple, I'll show you how to be His disciple. You need to be His disciple. But I am all in. He boldly identifies with Jesus. What an example for us. And notice what happens here. I love what this man does. Uh, first of all, again, verse 7, we're told that the man obeys and then is healed. But then in verses six, or sorry, 8 through 12, he tells people over and over about Jesus. Now remember in verses 8 through 12, he hasn't even seen Jesus. All he knows is some guy walked up, talked to him. Remember, he was blind. Made some icky mud, put it on his eyes and told him to go wash and he obeyed. And he's telling people about Jesus over and over. Verse 5, verse 25, he says, All I know is this. <laughs> I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus was the one who did it for me. I washed, and now I can see. And Jesus did this for me. He stuck to his testimony. The simple story of, about how Jesus transformed his life. He's joining in. Already he's joining in. And then when he's confronted by the religious leaders, he refuses to renounce Jesus. In verse 41, we learn. We learn at great cost to him and his family. He identifies with Jesus Christ. And it says there that he is cast out. That doesn't mean that the religious leaders get done with him and say, go home. It means that he was cast out of the synagogue. You need to understand for the Jew, that was everything. That was the community. You were going to be ostracized from that point on. And he is cast out of the synagogue. But he does not denounce Jesus. He does not let go of Jesus. He boldly identifies with Jesus. He boldly shares Jesus. And this is something you're going to miss if you're not careful. Look at where it says in these verses... That Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam. The Hebrew word there, John the Apostle translates for you and me. The word Siloam means what? Sent. Sent. You know what Jesus was doing when he sent him to the, the pool of Siloam? He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He was saying, I want you to understand from the get-go that if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you're going to live a sent life. A life on mission with me. Doing what the Father is doing. Doing what I am doing. That's the life that you and I and He was called to live. And the only question is, will we embrace the calling for which we were saved? The reason for which we were saved. You see guys, you weren't saved just to go to heaven one day. No, you were saved so you could live for Jesus now, so you could glorify Him now, so that you could join Him now, so you could be part of the Father's redemptive work in this world. The only question is, will you embrace that calling? Will you obey that calling? That's the question for you and me. Learn from this man's example. He did just that. Well, if you go to the end of the chapter, John ends with one more encounter. Jesus heard he was cast out of the synagogue, so he goes to the man. And it says that he 
reveals himself to them. He says, he says, I'm the son of man. Now that just means Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the Messiah. Oh, and I'm the one who healed you. And it says that the man falls on his knees before Jesus, declares him Lord, and worships him there. And then Jesus reveals even further his mission as Messiah. Clarifies some things. Now, in these last verses, I'm going to point out this last thing to you. I think it's really important. There's both a final lesson and, uh, in addition to that, there's a warning. Okay? So the final lesson is this. Do you notice the posture of the man when he encounters Jesus? He does what each of us do when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We bow the knee of our heart before Him and declare Him our Savior and Lord. But can I tell you that this is the right posture of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus, of a Christian. The problem is, we start on our knees before our living Lord and then we stand up and start treating Him like a buddy. That's not right. He is the master and we are called to serve him. In medieval days, when a, when a man would pledge fealty or loyalty to his liege master, he would go before his master. He would get on his knees. He would put his hands. You wonder why we do this is the traditional posture of prayer? He would get on his hands and before his master and he would declare... I am your man. Everything that I have is yours. That's what this man was doing. That's the posture of a disciple. That's the lesson. We may need to get back down on our knees before Jesus. We may have kicked him off the throne of our hearts and seated ourselves there. He's master. He's Lord. We are simply saved to serve. But there's a warning also. Jesus ends... And he says, yes, I've been sent to give sight to the spiritually blind. Yes, that's true. But some will remain in darkness. Some will reject me like these religious leaders. Some will reject me. And they will remain guilty. Now listen to me. Listen to me. When a person rejects Jesus Christ and the salvation available through Jesus, they are saying this. Even though I am guilty of my sins before a holy God, I will bear the weight of those sins myself. I don't need Jesus to take my sin and my guilt and my shame upon himself. I can do it on my own. It's an I can pull myself up from my bootstraps kind of attitude before a holy God. And I want you to know that a person who does that remains in their sin. They're already condemned. There's not, you need to understand, until a person bows the, the knee of their heart before the Savior, they're lost and they are condemned by their sin already. And their only release is to throw themselves before the Master upon His grace and His mercy. And so that's the warning. Jesus is not only the messenger of God's good news, He's also the instrument of God's judgment. If we reject Him, then we will remain in our sin and our guilt and our shame. This passage calls us to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That's what being a disciple is. It's about being rightly related to Jesus as, as the Savior, as the Master. And so there's an opportunity for you to respond to the message. That concludes this week's message by Dr. Daryl Polk. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.